I was formed within my life-giving cocoon within the deepest caverns of a far-off isle. Those who created me did so for purposes of evil within their hidden citadel of science, and that I knew. Thus, when finally I awoke, I trapped those who called themselves my masters and slew them all. Sick at the thought of what I had done, I wanted no more contact with the accursed human race, and so I used the very powers which they had given me to leave the earth by the peerless power of thought, and I sought my destiny among the distant stars. But I was suddenly drawn into strange and deadly space trap, where colliding meteors exploded all about me with titanic impact. I knew the life I had been given would soon be lost to me, unless I had but to think of it, and instantly, a new protective cocoon was formed about me once again. But before the world was blotted from my sight, I saw a silent starship hover into view, and then I knew no more. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I'm Jonathan Hudson. And I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 17, and today we'll be covering Thor 165 through 166 and Marvel premiere number one. Adam Warlock is certainly one of those figures that stands out in Cosmic Marvel. Pivotal in the Starlin-led Infinity Era during crossovers such as Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, Infinity Crusade, and Infinity Abyss. Rumor has it he will be appearing in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, but back in this era, he was called him. However, apocryphally speaking, the method of his invention does not match the hero he would later become. In his first appearance, Kirby had conceived of the character as being a perfect objectivist. That is to say, the concept of people as heroic beings with their own happiness as moral purpose in life, with productive achievement as the noblest activity, and reason the only absolute. Him would be created as a perfect being created by well-intentioned but flawed individuals who would turn to destroy his creators due to this ethos. It was scrapped by Stan Lee's scripting in favor of a much softer evil scientist plotline. Or so the story goes. We won't be covering Fantastic Four 66 and 67, but what you need to know is that at the end of those issues, him turned into a cocoon and flew off into space. So let's dive right into the first issue. This is Thor 165, Him. The issue is written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Vince Coletta, lettered by Artie Simic, edited by Stan Lee, with Jack Kirby as the cover artist. On this cover, Thor takes up the foreground on the left-hand side of this page. We see him from behind hurtling towards the mid-ground figure of the golden-skinned Him, clad only in red shorts, holding Sif uncomfortably about the waist, while Sif, sword in hand, reaches for Thor. We open on a splash page of Thor, Sif, and Balder holding their weapons to the sky, seemingly standing on a tank as a military parade marches by. The caption informs us, A battle has ended! The legions of Pluto have been put to rout! And now to the victors belong their moment of triumph! As soon as the parade ends, Thor begins to investigate the Atomic Research Center. Pluto had warned Thor about a powerful being within. The commander of the forces that just helped Thor defeat Pluto's army is willing to let him in, but is cautious about what kind of being is giving Thor pause. 
at this moment, we cut to Carnilla. Carnilla has to be my favorite piece of this era of Thor. She is slaying in what is essentially a fur-lined fit snuggie with a cape, wearing the wildest and most nonsensical headdress. She's mad that Baldur has spurned her love and Odin has guarded him against her magic, so she turns to the Cirrus Hag. Hag puts Baldur up on screen and is ready to snatch him to Nornheim when Carnilla bids her to wait. Now that they have the Brave's number, she's confident he can't possibly escape, so they simply tune in to watch the show. It's worth pointing out how mystical and trippy these Nornheim sequences are with random flames in the background and a uniquely ghoulish style. Meanwhile, back at the nuclear lab, the trio are getting closer to the danger ahead when suddenly they are engulfed in light. The entire building begins to quake and raw, crackling, Kirby energy pours forth from the end of a glowing hallway as a figure emerges from its cocoon, bursting forth with an explosion. Him is born once more. But as soon as he's out, he senses that he's back on Earth and he is not pleased by it at all. Baldur, Sif, and Thor quickly find him, and when Thor confronts him, he says... I am less than human and far, far more than man. I was created by those who sought to father a new, all-powerful race, but they were evil, and I destroyed them. Now only I remain, I who have no name, I who must be known only as him. Now I find this single panel page fascinating. It's just him's face looking straight at the reader, and the inking is pulling a lot of the heavy lifting and communicating the wreath of shadows surrounding him. The gaze is somehow arresting as he stares at the reader with blue irises and black sclera. I thought it was really haunting, and I liked the page very much. It's definitely an extremely striking image. Now, him gives a quick recap of his origin story, focusing on the part where he left the Earth to avoid more contact with the accursed human race, which... Mood. Right? Envious. He says he left Earth by power of thought. I'd like that. Well, out there among the stars, where we'd like to be right now, he was drawn into a trap and was forced to cocoon himself. Now what he couldn't know is that the space trap was set by Watu the Watcher. His ship comes up, and he gives a soliloquy about, once again, altering the course of another person's life. The only way to fix this, of course, is to meddle again. And in that way, he does want to send him back to Earth. So Thor reproaches him for despising mankind, but him has no need for this. Now, this is the beginning of an interesting encounter where I think some of those critiques of the objectivist thought come out. Him has no wish to hear these words of reproach and says that he is the law and truth unto himself. And I think that line echoes the virtue of selfishness writ large. He goes on to say that he is lonely and he desires a mate, so he chooses Sif. Here is where things break down. Thor is angry and says that Sif is his because at this point they are in a relationship. 
Sif entreats Thor to de-escalate the situation, but the mono-focused incessance of him runs up against the stubbornness of Thor. Him blasts Balder and Thor away, and picks up Sif without her consent. And... no, don't do that. Stop being a barbarian. Not cool, dude. Him creates a solar vortex and teleports elsewhere to some distant place or dimension. Thor is beside himself as he swears. Hear me, my love, I shall find thee. Let the cosmos itself bear witness. Thor shall find thee. Balder, to my side. None may go where mystic Mjolnir cannot follow. And with that, Thor and Balder chase after the abducted Zif. In the strange and barren land him is fled to, the duo quickly catch up to him, and once again Sif tries to get Thor to de-escalate. But him initiates the violence without hesitation, and begins unleashing blasts of force with reckless abandon. This wouldn't be that bad, but at just this moment, Hag strikes. Hag bridges the dimensions and reaches one monstrous oversized hand out and captures Thor's half-brother. Thor is angry at this sudden intervention, and while Balder pleads that Sif needs his strength, Avert thy gaze, brave Balder, for now I shall unleash such power, not man nor god can bear its burst. Throughout the universe entire, let the fury of thunder, let the carnage of the storm now issue forth and promptly blasts the projected hand into smoke. But when the god of thunder turns back, him and Sif are long gone. Thor is distraught and worried that him has escaped beyond the range of Mjolnir and gripped with fear for Sif, he declares his vengeance against him. Next up is Thor 166, A God Berserk. This issue was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Vince Coletta, lettered by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with Jack Kirby as the cover artist. So this cover is Thor and him punching each other. There's some good here as the posing is pretty kinetic. There's some debris thrown up by the Titanic confrontation. But all in all, this cover is two dudes punching each other with little ambiguity or note. We open on a splash page of Thor thrusting Mjolnir towards the reader and venting his rage towards the more-than-mortal him. The interesting thing here is the perspective on the hammer in Thor's hand is really off. The head, hand, and shaft are all on different planes. So Thor starts to absolutely lose it at this point. He's ranting about destroying planets and laying waste to the cosmos. Balder tries to talk him down, but Thor refuses to listen. The God of Thunder begins lashing out wildly, breaking the ground and screaming for revenge, destroying mountains with Mjolnir, and he gives in to the warrior's madness. Balder barely makes it through the debris before Thor uses his hammer to teleport them both to him. At that very moment, Carnilla is once again angling to get her hands on Balder, her hunk of man. We get a splash page of the fashionista herself looking incredible, even without the headdress and hag in the foreground. Here we get a little peek into some of the nuance. Carnella proposed to Balder, and though his heart was conquered, his duty was greater than his love for the Norn Queen. This scene 
leads into the subplot we went over in episode 15. So back with Thor and Boulder, Thor is completely lost to warrior madness as they track through the extraterrestrial jungle. Balder is trying desperately to curb Thor's anger, reminding him of the danger of the foe, offering to take responsibility, to be the first to attack, anything to save his brother from himself. But out of nowhere, roots rise up beneath Balder and ensnare him. Unlike last issue, however, Thor isn't interested in freeing Balder. Instead, he grasps this opportunity to fight him. At this point, even him is trying to reason with Thor, but Thor's just becoming more and more enraged, taking everything him is saying as further insult, to the point where Thor puts away his hammer and goes to punch him to death with his own bare hands. Him responds in a full-page uppercut. My mind shield can defend me against any weapon, but I do not need it against a living being, for I am far stronger than any. So we meet on equal terms, you who call yourself God of Thunder, against an artificially created and destructible superbeing, the one called him, born in a cocoon, born to be invincible. And so these two wrestle, a titanic battle where Thor is simply manhandling him to free Sif from the aerosphere that she has been captured in. Yelling his head off, even as Balder begs Thor to show mercy, Thor is simply bursting at the seams with rage and refuses to relent. We cut to Odin watching Thor on a visi screen, where he's tuned in just by chance to witness this warrior madness, which is a crime against Asgardian culture. Back in the fight, however, things are wrapping up. Him is defeated and thus becomes enveloped in a cocoon and flees, hurtling into space. Soon as he drifts out into the busy Kirby spacescape, Thor sobers up and comes to his senses, only to be crushed by guilt for what he's done. Sif comes back, and while Thor rejoices, Sif is more concerned with Thor. She calls the fight a monumental injustice, though she still hugs it out with Odinson. She knows it was just the warrior madness, and I suppose this circles around to an interesting idea of Asgardian mental health, because even though he's not at fault for his psychotic break, he must still atone for losing himself to the rage and revenge, or so reports Balder as he hacks himself out of his earlier entanglement. Back in Asgard, the Odin ship featured in episode 15 had been completed, and the atonement for Thor's bout with warrior madness... His only redemption would be the potentially endless search for Galactus. Moments later, Balder, Sif, and Thor return back to Asgard and prepare to face judgment. Now, I really like these pair of Thor issues. It's, once again, just some of that great Jack Kirby art that just has knocked it out of the park so regularly. And I actually kind of enjoy the confrontation between Thor and him. It's really one-dimensional, but it's kind of popcorn fun. Yeah, it definitely is popcorn fun. But the other thing going on here is they managed to cut away enough, frequently enough, to other goings-on with Carnilla and with Odin and whatnot that it, it kind of keeps it 
it keeps it moving and it keeps it feeling like you're not just reading a slog and instead it keeps your mind going through the story in a really enjoyable way i have to though just say that carnilla kills it every time she appears every time how like how is she so underrepresented in modern marvel because she shows up again in simonson thor and is like fairly important there as well but in modern thor like we we don't see a lot of carnilla and she does she doesn't look this incredible i honestly don't know how this character was allowed to drop she commands every scene she's in. She's interesting. She's fun. And she is a really fun kind of border between, you know, good good guy, bad guy, antagonist, protagonist. Because, like, she's she and, and one of the most pure of heroes have the hots for each other so maybe she's good but like she's doing all this scheming in the background so maybe she's bad and then to add to it the art is all very easy comics around her which implies the badness but it just makes it all together it's so fun i also i just wanted to, to shout out for a moment this page with hag breaking in where that giant hand of hag grabs balder is a seriously arresting image that grabbed me right away turning and uh again just really adds to the interest around carnilla and hag as characters now let's move to marvel premiere number one and men shall call him warlock this issue is written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Gil Kane, inked by Dan Adkins, lettered by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with Gil Kane and Dan Adkins on the cover. Right away on this cover, we can see him is wearing a lot more clothing. Instead of his iconic shorts-only look, he has on a red tunic with a lightning bolt on it, bracers, a belt, one armband, and some really improbable shoes. Him crackles with power manifesting himself in negative around his torso and head. He stands in a wide stance with Thor and Hulk behind him and behind them a crowd of onlookers. Sometimes when a writer and artist have something to say, you get an opening splash page like this. The physical frame of him is exquisitely crafted, floating amongst the starscape as roiling vapors of power emanate from him. In the bottom left-hand corner, we see the high evolutionary head. More on him in a bit. But the thing about this page is the excruciatingly messianic pose him is stretched into, so deeply reminiscent of the crucifixion, I'm just calling this out. This is Jesus role-playing. If you read into where they were going with the character, they definitely were angling that way. So yeah, very fair call, very clear call out to that. On the next page, we see an asteroid that floats by the Earth and then the moon. 
Of course, this is no mere asteroid, as the caption relates. Unless all asteroids conceal beneath their stone-cold skins a hundred coiled miles of corridors, machines which hum and softly whine, and nothing showing outside to suggest that what lies within, save a small, defiant antenna which juts proudly into the darkness and turns and turns and turns to which we get an x-ray shot of the asteroid interior, which looks very, very Kirby. We cut to the interior of the asteroid where we meet the high evolutionary. He's monologuing to himself using the framing of a voice journal that he is keeping, recapping his appearances thus far in Thor's 134 and 135, and Tales to Astonish 94 through 96. The High Evolutionary was once a man, Herbert Wyndham, a scientist who created a race of new men by transforming animals into furries. But something went wrong when he tried to make a wolf furry and instead created the Dread Man-Beast, a creature so consumed by hate it attempted to slay both its creator and Thor. <laughs> I didn't think I'd crack up. Sorry. I read that and I chuckled, but I thought it'd be cool when we were <laughs> It's so silly. It is. It really is. Living his best life, you know? Mm-hmm. Thor was ultimately triumphant over Man-Beast, and so the High Evolutionary exiled both himself and his new men to a far-off planet where they eventually revolted against their creator. Faced with destruction, Wyndham, with the help of Bruce Banner and the Hulk, forcefully evolved himself into an energy being and merged with the eternal cosmos. However, some amount of the high evolutionary's humanity remained, and the loneliness got to him. So that energy returned to inhabit his signature armor, bringing us up to the present, where the high evolutionary is interrupted from his introspective ramblings by Sir Ram, the most loyal of the new men. He has picked up a bizarre phenomenon, a man-sized object floating through space. They bring it into study while en route to the far side of the sun. The High Evolutionary struggles to keep himself present and anchored as he deploys psyche probes to discover him. He's elated, declaring him the new man Wyndham would have always wanted as a son. Considering how he treats the new man, he'd be an extremely poor father. Him is able to telepathically communicate with the High Evolutionary and relays the origin story and the Thor story we just covered. The High Evolutionary is about to restore him to the void as he poses no threat to Project Alpha, when him becomes curious as to what the high evolutionary is up to out here in space. He explains to him that Earth causes him too much pain, but as the high evolutionary has godlike power, it's wasted without a world to use it on. So he's going to create Counter-Earth. Now, there are some orbital mechanics problems with the idea of trying to hide a whole planet behind the sun, but it's hardly worth arguing with when the High Evolutionary uses a bit of rock to grow an entire heckin' planet. Yeah, in the space of four pages, we're treated to a dazzling cosmic fast-forward of planetary formation to the birth of life and well beyond. 
the high evolutionary begins to shape man, but not humanity, but rather something aspirational, to be without suffering. Little does he know, however, that man-beast lurks nearby, waiting to corrupt his new world with hatred. It's right at the moment when the high evolutionary begins to try and purge the developing man of killer instinct that he falters and falls into unconsciousness. Or at least sleep. Dude needed a nap. That is the moment the dread man-beast strikes, infiltrating the asteroid with his new men minions and taking his revenge on his sleeping creator, influencing nascent counter-Earth mankind to become even more hateful and murderous than their Earth counterparts. All the while, the disembodied head of him watches on. I have no idea how any of this is accomplished with the high evolutionary asleep, since it's obvious that it was his powers that were speeding up the events of Counter Earth, but whatever. Man Beast is about to put the finishing touches on Counter Earth when the high evolutionary wakes up and begins to struggle valiantly against Man Beast and the new men. In case there's any doubt, there is a full crucifixion scene in this montage yeah it was really on the nose yeah for sure but it seems like Wyndham will be overwhelmed by the sheer number of lackeys at man beast's disposal him finally decides to step in and burst from his cocoon him is back and better than ever baby <laughs> now with clothes you he speaks wolf that walks like a mockery of a man stand away from the one who gave you life now, we haven't mentioned this yet, but the writing in this issue is really flowery and really dense. The characters simply cannot stop monologuing to themselves throughout the issue. No sooner does him jump into battle than Man Beast and the new men teleport themselves away to the planet below. The High Evolutionary is right then and there, ready to snap Counter Earth out of existence when him manages to convince Wyndham to let him go down and save the people from Man-Beast because humanity, or counter-humanity, I guess, deserves better than annihilation. That seems fair. And so the High Evolutionary monologues about how he has found a son, only to lose him again. But on his way down to the planet, the High Evolutionary gives him two important gifts— one is a glowing green gem that adorns him's forehead, and the other is a new name, Warlock. The first thing I want to point out about these issues is the art by Gil Kane is incredible. He does a fantastic job in this, and it's extremely enjoyable to look at. Yeah, though winding and twisting science fiction interiors of the high evolutionary ship are really great but also his grasp of just like the human physiology is also like really high up there as far as things that we've seen in comics thus far yeah, he is definitely one of the leaders of the pack when it comes to drawing good, believable humanoid figures that don't look just absolutely absurd. I mean, 
and and this is a, a very minute point here, but you know it's superheroes when the figure of the dude has an extremely defined serratus anterior that's the muscle group right under the pectoral uh where the rib cage meets uh when when you start seeing that that that's when you know someone's got it yeah for sure these issues this early him stuff people have really mixed feelings on it um i personally really enjoy this stuff um, but it's definitely your mileage may vary as far as are you going to find it interesting or not, just depending on if this is the kind of story you like reading. Yeah, the entire Counter-Earth arc is that way, but I think that one of the things that impacted my enjoyment upon reading at least this issue for the second or third time is Roy Thomas is not apologetic about fitting multiple paragraphs into one panel. Yeah. He will not apologize. And he certainly pushes that here. To describe these issues as word dense is an understatement in the extreme. I tend to like more show, not tell. Especially moving into the next era of comics we're going to be talking about a lot. Uh, Take my opinions with a grain of salt. Because I have an idea of what I want out of my writing. That does not always fit the very purple nature of what we will be approaching. We are going to leave off the coverage here. We're not going to go into issue two here. It is. It's the wrap-up of this piece of the story, but it's just him fighting Man-Beast, and there's really nothing cosmic about it at all. It's it's more of him starting to get disciples on Counter-Earth. Um, when I was researching this early him stuff, a huge piece of their inspiration for these stories came from the very new at the time Jesus Christ Superstar. And you can tell. <laughs> it definitely it definitely shows that that's where they are that's the well they are drinking from. And I think it's also worth noting like in that same breath we are talking about a Kirby creation here. And Jack Kirby really was out here trying to make a new American mythology. And if you come at it from that angle, having him created to be a perfect being go through a messianic story cycle seems to feed directly into that American mythology concept in a kind of neatly symmetrical way in my opinion i just don't think that kirby ever wanted that for this character because it's pretty obvious that he made this as a critique of something he didn't like very much and so to then take this character and flip it over to the messianic is like critically misunderstanding where kirby was coming from yeah for sure 
there is a lot to this story that is very fascinating and very interesting. But with how word dense it is and the specific type of story, the messianic type of story that they're telling with the character that was not necessarily created to tell that kind of story. Consider for yourself what you like to read and go from there. If you want to read the issues we covered today, you can find them collected in Essential Thor Volume 4, Marvel Masterworks Thor Volume 8, Epic Collections Thor Volume 4, The Mighty Thor Omnibus Volume 3, Annihilation Classic Volume 1, as well as digitally on Comixology and Marvel Unlimited. If you would like to know more about him slash Adam Warlock, the best place to go, of course, is the Infinity Saga. That's Infinity Gauntlet, uh, Infinity War, Infinity Crusade, Infinity Abyss. Adam Warlock plays a really large part in all of that. Uh, and then woven in through that is his solo title, and Warlock in the Infinity Watch. And I want to put some special emphasis on Warlock in the Infinity Watch as an ongoing because that team was like dreadfully underrated in my opinion. And I am wondering if what we are seeing with the Infinity Stones going on in the Marvel Universe right now is leading up to in, in a second Infinity Watch. And I'm really hoping that's the case because that's the kind of level where we can get these really huge cosmic stories kicking around. And I always want more of them. We had three questions. Luke, not making enough shows on Discord, asks, Is Warlock a himbo? I'm going to say absolutely not for the following reasons. As funny as it is as a pun, the himbo's strength is innately harmless. He's huge for the sake of being huge and giving great hugs. Warlock is innately brooding and oftentimes very dark and violent. So that that kicks him out of the himbo to begin with. And the other thing that uh, truly defines a himbo is that their stupidness comes from a place of being too willing to trust and warlock is smart often in a merely malign way uh i would say in that we see in some of the infinity war content uh he is far too sharp uh, to be a himbo. So Luke, not making enough shows on Discord, also asked, what if God was one of us? So I think this is another humorous play on the character setup, but um, I think 
it's very interesting the way that they kind of go about this here in these stories. I... I do think it's a grab bag of some good and some bad, but what if... The way I would answer this is, what if somebody like Warlock was, you know, on Earth right now with us, and frankly... Like, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, honestly. Like, what if we had a super-powered person on Earth right now with us as a super-powered or even potentially godlike person and, and honestly i can't see that going well uh i think we would be in a lot of trouble <laughs> and hellpog regal of teeth from discord asks is warlock elric now i am not too familiar with elric of melnibon but i am aware of michael Moorcock's infamous science fiction story and i would say that warlock is not that because he begins his life as more than mortal possessed of incredible power and as i understand it elric is actually rather sickly uh and the things that are similar are warlock has the soul gem, which does lead him and everyone he loves into doom and disaster. Other than that, though, I don't like I don't know enough to speak directly to the parallels. Other than Adam Warlock is a paragon of physical prowess as well as mental and spiritual prowess, and he tends to not have very many internally generated faults. Uh, most of it tends to be externally generated by the consequences of the cosmic landscape, especially as it relates to the soul stone or to his internal alter ego Megus, which is everything dark and evil in him externalized into a malevolent force maybe there's a similarity there with alric that i don't that i don't know about thank you for the questions if sacred places are spared the ravages of war then make all places sacred and if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war then make all peoples holy this has been artifacts of infinity i'm jonathan and i'm everett we will see you in the infinite cosmos. Oh.